Hi, it's David Brighty here, and I'd like to invite you to join me in my psychedelic sidekick, Dr. Gonzo, on a music exploration here on, and this one's introduced by, on community radio station 3CR. Dr. Gonzo, and this one's introduced by is a 60-minute program where we listen to tracks from an album introduced by the artist who made the album. Thanks for listening, and this one's introduced by Musician David Bridey is something of a national treasure. Founding Melbourne ambient world music group Not Drowning Waving in 1983 with John Phillips, the group went on to release six studio albums and two soundtracks until disbanding 11 years later before reforming four times and releasing three compilation albums. In 1991, David Bridie and fellow Not Drowning Waving band members formed My Friend the Chocolate Cake to play more acoustic-based material and went on to release seven studio albums and numerous live and compilation collections. Since then, there's been many solo albums and live performances. One of David's attributes is his curiosity in exploring different cultures for inspiration, including Rabol in Papua New Guinea, collaborating with local artists and returning to PNG to play concerts, including the capital Port Moresby, to an audience of 25,000. Bridie's empathy and support of the less fortunate is apparent with the release of his latest album. It's been a while since our last correspondence. With a spoken word piece by artist and refugee Farhad Bangdesh, backed by David's dub Soundscape. The album is a powerful collaborative spoken word and music record with David Bridie and 13 of his talented friends who each narrate a piece. Participants include the aforementioned Farhad Bangdesh, Damien Callahan, Edwina Preston, Deborah Brown, Kit Kavanagh Ryan, Anthony Morgan, Matt Quartermain, Kathleen Fallon, Kutcher Edwards, Arnold Zabel, Danny Dixon, Catherine Davini, and Kerry Simpson. There's also a piece by David Briney entitled Sympathetic Martin. Keep an eye out for that one. David Briney joins Dr. Gonzo to present his album. It's a while since our last correspondence on, and this one's introduced by, on Community Radio 3CR. Um, My name's David Bridie. So I started a band together with a guitarist named John Phillips called Not Drowning Waving, and we started, I reckon, 1983. Um, I mean, I'd done a few musical things before then, but that was was, uh, my potato. Um, uh, We recorded our first single out at La Trobe Union we recorded two songs and a bunch of instrumentals just kind of piano and guitar textual stuff and a bit of uh, synth stuff on a Juno 6 I think was the keyboard I had at the time and Johnny and I were just I think our idea was just to put out records and not necessarily play live gigs it was just the two of us with some few friends who'd come in and this eventually grew to um, a six-piece band with some wonderful musicians uh, Tim Cole, Rowan McKinnon, Russell Bradley, James Southall. We 
So from 1983 to 1994, we ran, we did about seven albums. Some of them, half, half instrumental, half songs. Some big kind of wall of sound, percussion and guitar. And, and Johnny's guitar stuff was quite textural and loud. And then there was these really kind of quite sparse instrumentals and some songs. So we did that. And then uh, towards the end of that, I started off this acoustic band called My Friend the Chocolate Cake with Helen Mountford, who's a cello player, a wonderful musician. And that was kind of like as a side project to Not Drowning Waving, but ended up sort of being, you know, not, not Drowning Waving finished, I reckon, 94 or something. And so that was all acoustic, shallow violin, uh, drums, double bass, mandolin and piano. Um, again, half instrumentals, half songs. And then I did a, my first solo record around the end of the 90s, um, 99, and still releasing them today. And that's sort of probably more harkening back to the Not Drowning Waving days, except, you know, not not writing songs when you're 22 as opposed so being a, a, a bit older so they're the be- that, that's the music stuff that I've done but I've also done I've also I kind of realized early on to make music work uh which I wanted to do to make a you know eke out a living out of it was to um uh diversify it I like w- collaborating with other art forms so I've, I've done a lot of film soundtrack work I've produced other artists and I've set up a, a record label that works with artists from uh, Melanesia, uh, Papua New Guinea and the Solomons and places like that, um, which kind of came out of Not Drowning Waving recording a record up in Rabaul in PNG in 1988, which is um, uh, one of the great experiences of my life and uh, w- w- met some fantastic musicians, some of whom, especially in the case of George Tellick, I'm still working with now but we're here to talk about um so my latest record is a um, a spoken word record it's called um it's been a while since our last correspondence and i work with 13 other artists to put out a record of, of 14 tracks i do one myself where they do a spoken word piece and i put the music underneath it i look uh, yeah no this would be good to um speak about it in the format that uh, Dr. Gonzo has for his show here is perfect for this. So, um, yeah, so the, the, what's the, the background to the record? I was just, even early Not Drowning Waving days, did sp- some spoken word. Uh, I like the idea of, um, oh, in the same way that, as I said, half of Not Drowning Waving and Chocolate Cake were instrumentals, I kind of would get sick of my own voice in singing, and singing's kind of... I love singing, but... I, I also like listening to tracks where you don't have to listen to somebody warbling along. And I, I like the sound of spoken word. I like the way that people tell stories and the texture in the voice. And it's a different outlet for the words. And so, you know, I was always I was a big fan of Laurie Anderson's United States Live and, and Big Science. I love Ivor Cutler, the, the Glaswegian kind of spoken word performer and singer i love that what's it there's a trek on uh, listening wind i think on the talking head romanian light record about the guy copying what other people buy in the supermarket so yeah that that um from cooper clark i really like you know so so um i went round and asked 14 people that i knew or 13 other people sorry that i knew and or i had worked with from a whole range of different backgrounds so some were comedians 
Some were uh, singers or artists. Some were people with a particular take on the world. But they're all performers of some, in some way. And the idea was to come up with this take on Australia of a of a new and different Australia. And there's, so there's some quite tragic stories. Cookshire Edwards talks about. He writes a letter to his mum who he was stolen from when he was really young and being brought up in it as a ward of the state in Alambie. Um, and Fahad Bandesh was a refugee I met up on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea and he, he writes about, um, he writes this love song to the concept of freedom that he wrote whilst he was being detained in the, in the prison camp on, on, on Manus. And then at the other, at the so they're quite, you know, heart of the matter, things that are shit about Australia and... Uh, and some of the worst practices that we've perhaps been engaged in as a country. And then there's other things that are kind of uh, quintessentially Australian, quite, uh, and, you know, Anthony Morgan's piece is called The Wake Singers, and um, which we'll get into later, but it's, you know, about a relationship between his grandfather and these magpies and living in the bush. And Catherine Devaney does a piece about the um, reservoir baths when she was 14, and you can kind of smell the popcorn and the pine lime splice and the alpine cigarettes being smoked behind the shelter sheds and the you know the, you can see the crack in the ass of the you know the lifeguard with his impossibly tight shorts and all that kind of, and that's it, kind of funny and you, you you're there and so all the artists did their piece put some music on it got you know some other people to come and play on it as well and and that's this album so it's a double album so well um the the opening track is a piece with damien callanan it's called This Is A Good Diary. Damien found the diary that his mother wrote when he, they, he, she was courting Damien's father. Actually, Damien's father also wrote a diary, but Damien says that's pretty boring. He just writes, you know, bought, you know, you know two pounds of fish today and, you know... Yeah, he's just very matter of fact about things, but his his the mother's diary, his mum's diary is a, is a ripper, and it kind of takes you to the heart of the northern suburbs. It's a Rosanna Montmorency that in post war, post Second World War, and there's also you know the local Catholic tennis club, lots of Catholic uh, dances, and you know um, um, repat hospitals and things, and because uh, uh, Damien's mum was a, a nurse, and it's fantastic. And so Damien Reed kind of he he, he's rewritten it so that it reads well. He also he's also done a um, a theatre piece about it called Double Feature, um, which is worth seeing. And this was one of the few ones on this record where the music and the spoken word were put down together. So I played the piano, and Helen Mountford played the cello at the same time as Damien put down his story. This is a good diary. April twelfth. Jack Boland took me to the races at Flemington. Back two firsts and a third. Later, we went to the Dimity Inn for dinner and then saw anchors away at the Merry Theatre. Ended up coming home in a taxi. Fancy. Jack is keen, Kathleen. The Gigi's, dinner, double feature, and he's forked out for a cab home. I think he's in for the long haul. You're not giving much away, are you? According to earlier entries, Jack's not the only stallion in the field. My mum's out and about in the Melbourne of 1946. 
and Jack Boland still holding out hope. This is a good diary. June 1st. The dance was beaut. My new blue top looked very nice, so I was told. Spent most of the night with Brian McKenna's friend Leo, something or other. He's the secretary of the St Kilda CYMS. Very good dancer. Had nearly every second dance with him. Very nice. Okay, you've put an exclamation mark on very nice, Kathleen. Is there more to the story? And didn't Brian McKenna take you to the movies on Wednesday? I heard Jack Boland gave you soap for your birthday. Soap, Jack? What were you thinking? Is he still holding out hope? This is a good diary. June 4th. Went to the Gowville to see the Son of Fury and on the avenue with Ron Rogan. He tried to kiss me goodnight. Didn't seem to like it much when I refused. Good for you, Kathleen. I've been wary of Ron Rogan since his first mention on May 14th. Hey, did Mr Hanson give your pencil back or were you right to say goodbye pencil as the office door closed behind him? Did Margaret wash your sockets after she borrowed them? I heard you got into the club rooms at Victoria Park. Handy having Collingwood legend Fonts Kine as a cousin. Is Jack Boland still holding out hope? This is a good diary. June 8th. As we walked down the hill, Pat thought she saw Jack Cooper and sure enough, it was the East boys. East Brunswick CYMS were playing football against Ivanhoe. Jack and Tom came over at half time and had a friend with them. Adrian has been away with the RAAF. That's why we hadn't met him previously. I was cold and he gave me his heavy Air Force coat. All right, Kathleen. Who is this flyboy moving in on Jack, Ron, Brian and Leo, what's his name? Busy week ahead. You've got a Children of Mary meeting as well as planning for the Victorian Catholic Lawn Tennis Association dance. Are you still going to have time to read to the returned soldiers at Heidelberg Reaper? And is Jack Boland still holding out hope? This is a good diary. June 15th. Went over to East Brunswick for the dance. Pat and I were booked up for three to four dances ahead. It was beaut. Adrian came home with me. Jack Boland didn't seem to like it much. I got kissed goodnight and I didn't mind at all. I like Adrian. I suppose that's the difference. Look, I feel your pain, Jack but it was to be expected. He gave her his Air Force jacket and you gave her soap. It's probably for the best. 
I wouldn't be here if Kathleen hadn't picked the flyboy. This is a good diary. So the second track on the record is uh, I've always wanted to work with Edwina Preston, amazing uh, artist uh, and writer. I think she's got a, her book is called Bad Art Mother. That's been winning some kind of a awards and things. Uh, not that that defines whether something's good or not. But Edwina's got kick and edge, and she, so she came up with these. Um, so her her track's called Brother Sister Grave, and this has got some uh, you know a rhythm section that's kind of sort of edgy. Uh, with some wonderful guitar work on it from Julian Medor. And so there was a, uh, got Dave Foley, the drummer, and Paul Cartwright both played to come in, and we just recorded a whole lot of rhythm section feels, grooves, if you will, or we, oh, I think we did about eight of them, and that was for the, and so they were sometimes given to uh, the spoken word artist just as a, a tempo thing, and then they would put their spoken word over the top and then we'd embellish it from there. There's quite a few on this record that are like that. But there's a real edge in Edwina's uh, words and she, um, yeah, no, she's quite the uh, quite the writer. And they, these are three separate pieces that are joined together. Parks, let down car tyres, got caught shoplifting, said fuck on trams. My brother worked hard, got good marks, got scholarships, got a PhD, got houses, got kids, got money, got sick. My sister worked hard, works hard, makes food, makes calls, sends emails, has conflicts. Spends money, loses money, stays up late at night, cuts leather pieces into leather shapes, cries wet tears, dry tears, no tears, drinks wine, puts hands to head and head to rock. 
makes small red bullet holes I feel in my own forehead that take me and her and all our women to the grave. Drunkishly over cats and over ice, native birds on black roads and black tarmac. I have driven drunk and sober, clean and cold. I have killed and I have driven on. just want a pill that will put me to sleep I just want a pill that will put me to sleep That will chime through my veins That will creep through my sleep That will lock on my blood That will lock on my blood That will trap That will settle and cage and contain That will trap That will keep That will settle and cage That will trap So Farhad Bandesh is a, a Kurdish refugee who um, was part of the uh, cohort of people who made their way out of war-torn areas of the world um, to Christmas Island and then got imprisoned on Manus Island. People who were had been forced to leave their their homelands by you know people like Saddam Hussein or the you know the, the Assad in. Um, Syria or the Iranian leadership, people that, you know, out the, you know, the John Howes of the world would have crapped on about how these were enemies of Australia. So these people were enemies of our enemies. But uh, Farhad's a, a, yeah, a Kurdish man, a winemaker, an artist, a musician. He's a ripping, a lovely fella. And I met him on Manus Island because I, because of my Papua New Guinea connections was up there. Uh, and he was a mate of Beirut Bashani, the, the journalist and uh, novelist. And so... We'd sort of formed a friendship, and he I did some music for Damien Callanan's film, The Merger, a film about a footy club that has to merge and recruits all these refugees to play to, to play in the town, a, a country footy team uh, from Bogsy Creek. And uh, Farhad, whilst he was in Manus, did a piece for the film soundtrack. He kind of recorded this stuff, this guitar piece, this Kurdish guitar piece that was used in the film. That was kind of cool to be able to earn him some money and to, it was a good story, especially for a film that was about refugees helping a uh, an undermanned football team. So it was always, uh, Farhad's story is important, his voice is important, and he's a great musician and artist. Uh, admittedly, he's, he's uh, speaking in a, his, you know, sixth language, 
but he also he uh, also got to play on the piece. So uh, his track is it's it's a love song to freedom or a node to freedom that he wrote whilst being in prison on Manus Island. You call me from a distance, the size of the world, and you are like being from another world. You're looking for me, and I'm looking for you. You attempt to find me. You never gave up. is not too much is not too much it's just like breeze you will come to see me but not in this my house Let me come to see you. It's time. Long time. You sit behind these fences and I don't want you to know how I live here. I don't want you to be sad. You are my beautiful son. I don't want to lose you anymore.
Kapukazi Good Child by Deborah Brown is the next track. Uh, Deborah is a dancer in Bangara. Deborah's the only per, only uh, contributor on this record who I haven't met in person, um, but I knew Deborah through her work with Bangara. Oh, look, I want to explain about what it, what the story is about. But she's she's from Murray Island, but uh, wasn't necessarily brought up speaking her language, and and so it looks at, at First Nation identity, but um and uses some of the music that I recorded when I did the soundtrack for Remote Area Nurse, a, a TV program that was set in the Torres Strait Islands. I was held with love, couple cars, good child. That's what she'd say to me. Like the tide, her language would ebb and flow to my ears. Like the tide, her dance would ebb and flow to my feet. Her smile like pearl shell. I'd see her laugh, speaking kalalagoya. I wouldn't know what she was saying, but I would know enough from her music. And what do I represent now? I was my mother's child and now I'm chaos. Grounded in identity past, I'm now disposable. Dispossessed within myself, dissed by you, posed next to you to make your friends happy or posing a threat. Why would you not want to celebrate the journey it took to find each other, the lineage? the hardships our ancestors carried so we could have this freedom, this freedom to meet each other, this freedom to live with one another, and yet I am rationed. I am rationed in your world of sport, swipes, powder, smoke, and liquor. These pores have a history. This blood carries something. I don't speak my language. It's peppered through my life, but when I hear it sung, I soar. I feel stronger and bigger and a part of a fabric that continues. When I hear the beat, the drum is struck and hearts unified. But when we're together, that richness has little value. Disposable. Disposed for your importance amongst others. Able is what I once was, but ability, my ability to fit, my ability to fly, my ability to swim, my ability to laugh, love, reserved for little time. I'd ask you if you missed me, and you never were too sure. You wanted to test the boundaries, and every time I forgave you, it hurt a little more. I thought you were the great one, and I was... Well, flawed. Flawed by inadequacies to the power of the middle. It was my nose, my teeth, my skin, my feet. I wish you could love me like I was the girl next door, but I'll never be her, the one who next you'll adore. I'll be the experiment, the curiosity, but not the one for long. You fell for my exoticism and you wanted me complicit. I don't want to be that stereotype, typecast, cast aside, a side piece. Peace is all I want. 
I thought it was love. I want to love. I have the freedom to love. Love to the end. Love to transcend. Love like art. How art looks at love. How language carries love. How song carries love. But instead we lay and swipe history in our blood and forget. Forget how we have the chance to love now. Track five is called Sympathetic Martin, and that's my piece on the record. It's just list. It's kind of a list of a whole lot of different personality types and characters that you'd meet around the inner north of Melbourne. And I just kind of had this sort of vamp, this piano and guitar vamp and you know, four on the floor kind of beat and just ranted over the top of it. Sympathetic Martin. <laughs> When you're old. 
trying to keep out of strife? And does your best friend try to sign you up for a pyramid scheme? You cannot blame a bloke for trying to get ahead of things. The smiling guy asks you, are you happy with your life? You say, I haven't given it much thought, I'll go and talk it over with the wife. There are hippie beers and hipster beers and men who forgot to shave. Just trying to lead a modern life. Uh, this is this is a really cool format. This uh, and this one's introduced by. So um, I'd like to thank Dr. Gonzo for allowing me on 3CR to uh, do this. So this is a. Um, so I'm going through each track of my um, collaborative record. It's been a, a while since our last correspondence. Okay, track six is called "Thanks for Five Years" by Kit Kavanaugh Ryan. Uh, Kit had done a spoken word piece on. Um, a track of mine called She's Up and Gone off the Wisdom Line and it worked and that was um part of the motivation for doing the spoken word record. Kit is a self described crip lit artist. Uh, she lives with cerebral palsy and has a visual impairment. And this so this piece, Thanks for Five Years, is is written to the person who donated their cornea. That she so she has a cornea transplant which lasts for five years. Uh, Kit's a she's a uh, she's a great uh, as um, yeah no she's a great artist great writer and it was a real uh, joy working with her on this uh, on this piece There's some uh, vibraphones in there um, the, all the, all the music was sort of so I'd started off um, with uh, just you know piano or you know, some studio noodling of sorts um, and then send it round to people very much a COVID record, as I said before. Um, and so, you know, different, you know, guitarists have put little bits of embellishments on there or um, some pieces. Um, anyway, so this is Thanks for Five Years, Kevin R. Ryan. People go for Panadol before eye surgery, but I cut out the middleman. I'm sorry, but the lights are dripping again. They're riding shotgun with the rain, covering the world in streaking neon bits of themselves, and I'm smearing a Sydney New Year's Eve worth of fireworks out of my face whenever I look at a screen. 
world is hot and hectic and I know it's going to lead to thick files and waiting rooms full of old farts and sunglasses, scans without Medicare numbers, anaesthetic dissolving slow and burning slower. New motorcyclists to thank, her sure hands turned their accident into my new tissue donation. And the worst part? It isn't sharing cells with you, mate. It's that I can't make you last. I would if I could. I treasure each moment you give me as you're held on by a surgeon's fairy stitches and my blood learns to live with this piece of your body. Thanks for five years. with fewer headaches. You help me get dressed and go out at night. The stretch of you is less than a ten-cent coin and you do more than your weight. But still, I break you down. Your cells have to play with my cells and there's a whole glorious mess of me. So I feel when you lose your grip, the world crumpling into new shapes. Walking into windows like a magpie drunk on sunlight, and each time my lips splits, I feel you slipping. I'd keep you if I could. We'd grow up and grow old together, and yeah, maybe we'd still be blind as hell because miraculous isn't miracles. But we'd do our best, and maybe one day, if we're good and quiet, surgeries will stop outnumbering my age. But the headaches are back and the lights are dripping again. Thanks for five years. Thanks for five years. Hi, I'm David Bridie and you're listening to And This One's Introduced By, where the artist introduces tracks from their album, and you're right here on 3CR. Track 7, this is one of my favourites on the record, The Wake Singers, uh, Anthony Morgan's piece. Now, I've known Anthony for years. He's been living down in Signet and Tassie for the last 20 years, I reckon, and I often played at the Signet Festival there and go and stay at Anthony and Sue's place. Oh, there it And yes, it has magpies in it. It's about the story about his grandfather. Oh, oh look, again, I won't say what the story's about because you'll hear it, but Anthony and I, did, we did a piece together called Hemden Town on my last record, The Wisdom Line. A- Anthony's kind of one of those people who, if ever I played a gig in Hobart, this went back to my friend the Chocolate Cake days as well as Solar Records, Anthony would come up and we'd, we'd collaborate on a track. And it'd be totally different from the rest of the night. Anthony had, in his, you know, you know, his way, would come and talk to the audience for about seven minutes. And it always seemed to fit in, even though it was totally different from anything that I was doing. And um, I always trust, trusted him, trusted... It was always great having Anthony involved, and I never trusted how it would go. It was... Um, 
Um, but I, I think he's kind of one of, you know, he's he's one of the country, this country's treasures as an artist. He's kind of um, got a take, an edge. Um, he shines a light on things. I love this track, The Wake Singers. Like with Hemden Town, I've got a pump organ in my studio uh, down the... Um, down the Otways and it's this lumpy out of tune kind of thing and it, it creaks and it whirs and it um um and the, the the notes surge because you're pressing on the on with your feet on the pedals to kind of make the sound and it, it was the perfect backdrop rural tale of the wake singers Where I grew up, there were questions of identity to be faced every day. What are you? What's your fucking go? Questions that wanted real quick, simple answer or you'd be in for a punch in the head. Oftentimes you're in for a punch in the head anyway. My mum's people were good talkers and funny. I listened to them like stink, like fire because I was little and I needed to talk quick and funny. Mum told me a great story this time, sitting in the backyard one afternoon, listening to a magpie caroling a few doors down. I told her about some mates of mine who had a cheeky one that had come in the kitchen if you weren't quick enough taking food out for it. And when it sang indoors, it reverberated around and rang like a cathedral. Mum smiled and sat back in her chair and she said this. When I was little, my great-uncle fed the magpies. Just one or two at first, then they had little ones and the littles came with the parents. After a while, if he was slow coming out, they'd peck on the back door and yell in for him. They'd do that caroling. The little ones had babies of their own and they'd come too and he fed all of them. They'd sit on him, wild birds except for visiting him in the afternoon. So many magpies used to come in the end and he was a long way from a rich man. He'd have a can of beans for his tea or even go without in order to have some meat to give to them. When he died, he was laid out in his front room and everyone was there to pay their respects and have some little cakes. And I remember then when they carried him out in the coffin, all those magpies were sat on his front fence and they all started caroling as they carried his coffin up the path while they loaded him in the hearse and drove away. They were mourning his death, those birds, giving him a proper send-off. I'll never forget it. That story filled up my head. I could see and smell and hear everything in it. When I got back to Melbourne, I told it to my friends who had the visiting magpie. But I couldn't remember, was it Mum's uncle or grandfather? Neither of those seemed right, but the most of the story overshadowed that small uncertainty. I kept telling the story to anyone, mostly because it was a great story to tell and you could hang a million morals and lessons and science theories off of it. And it was a solid, song-filled tale of simple love. Thank you. 
The next time we had a visit, Mum was coming to see me. Maybe, maybe I'd moved to Tasmania already. I can't remember how and when things happened at that time. It's all jumbled up spaghetti in my mind, and I say you don't make spaghetti better by getting it straight. The thing I needed to ask her was who was it who fed the magpies? Was it your uncle or your great uncle or your grandfather that the magpies gave the beautiful send-off to when he died? Mum said she didn't know what I was talking about. She said she didn't tell me a bird story. So I told her the whole thing, just like she told it to me. And at the end, I could tell she loved it, the sad musical ending most of all. She said to me, that's a lovely story, but I didn't tell it to you. I'd never heard it before. I could tell when she was lying, and she wasn't. Maybe she was embarrassed of telling something so personal of her family out loud. Maybe she is losing her marbles. Then again, maybe I made the story up and dreamed up the part where my mum told it to me and then forgot about all of that except for the fictional bits and it's in the spaghetti with all the other vaguenesses and it's my mind that's come unhinged. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter who thought of it and then forgot, or if neither of us did. We have this magicked up story of the simple harmony between a quiet man and a clan of magpies. And whenever one of us remembers the story, it gets more meat on its bones. And possibly, for our family, that's what we are. Maybe. That's our fucking go. Shark 8 features Matt Quartermain, who um, you'll remember is being part of the Empty Pockets uh, with Matt Parkinson back around, back in the 80s and the early 90s. Did some FM radio stuff as well. But uh, Quarters worked in an old people's home during uh, COVID and he wrote this cracking piece about that experience. Now, my mum's in an old people's home and I go out and visit her and they are bizarre places. They're really uh, sad and awful, awful places <laughs> that you think, God, when I get to that age, that's so not for me, you know, unless you... Although I did, I did get to watch Doris Day's the pyjama game yesterday when I visited mum and it was fantastic it was kind of I didn't know that that Orlando's hideaway song came from uh, the laundryman so there's anyway there's those kind of weird things that you get introduced to but oh Matt talks fantastically about uh, a game of bingo when because of COVID people weren't allowed outside of their room so all the oldies are standing uh, sitting in their chairs at the underneath their door with the door open See these shoes or slippers neatly arranged out in the hallway, and the and the bingo call is calling, and everyone's you know writing off the numbers from their um horns. It's a great image. I performed this live a couple of times with quarters. He loves it because it, it's sort of it's with the band because it's loud and it's rock. He says his comedian going, "Oh, I like this rock business. It's pretty cool." Um, yeah, no, he's he's brilliant as well. So this is the Laundry Man by Matt Quartermain. Thank you. 
when the pandemic hit. I was working in the laundry and aged care home with Beck, a 32-year-old Shirley Temple emo with a heart of gold. We call Beck the laundry detective because she can find a missing nighty in a day. What are you doing? asked Beck. I can't tell if this bra is dry, says I. Maybe don't test it on your cheek, says Beck. It looks kind of creepy. I'm your laundry man. That's what I am. I'm your laundry man. When the pandemic hit, I was working with Laurel, a 45-year-old, 20-year laundry veteran, the hardest working person on the planet, mother of two, wife of one, and who still cannot afford to buy a home. Laurel has turned a life of adversity into kindness and wisdom. We just smile and do our job, says Laurel, her hands folding face washes like an origami master, as I stack towels like a two-year-old playing Jenga. When the pandemic hit, the oldies were isolated in their tiny rooms for months at a time, so they played bingo from their doorways, the corridor a sea of comfortable footwear. 34, three and four, says the caller. My age, says I. Bullshit, says Babe. With a wit drier than the linen I carried, as counters bounced on numbered trays, and slip feet jiggled with delight. I'm your laundry man. Can't somebody else do what I can? Laundry, laundry man. When the pandemic hit, changing the PPE was like playing that game. The floor is lava, only everything was lava. The cleaners dropped off their dirty cloths and mops at the end of the day. Eyes watering, throats raw and heads throbbing with migraines after cleaning with bleach all day. If we said we were stressed, we could stay home and earn more money on JobKeeper, says Laurel, quickly becoming my life coach. When the pandemic hit, we became frontline heroes. Our superpower is being completely invisible. I'm your laundry man. Ask someone else. Givenchy, Target, Bella, Hamilton, Black Pepper, Anko, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's too many of you. Not after me. Oh, my glasses are fogged up again. I can't breathe in this mask. Well, I can. But I, I don't like it. Alright? What? Ah, it's my bad. It's the... Ah. My dong management. Thank you. Uh, track nine is called The Etc. Prayer, Prayer by Kathleen Mary Fallon. Kathleen I wrote a film called Call Me Mum that I did the film soundtrack for a while back. She's very bright, very sassy, very edgy. Brighty. She's a lot of stuff based around Queensland. So when I say edgy, it's like, you know, she, like most of us would, she reacted pretty strongly against that sort of Bjorki Peterson vibe up there and, um, uh, you know, how conservative 
Queensland is it? It's, it's a it's a world that she was brought up in. So she had this piece, uh, the etc. Tr- the etc. Prayer that she put over a piece of music that I worked up with uh, drummer Michael Barker. The cake is now he's a a, a Maori uh, musician lives in Wellington now. Um, and this was a it was the the feel the drum and bass part was um, a B side track off um, the Wisdom Line, but it's a per- it was a perfect underlay for Kathleen's piece. Ka- Kathleen's playwright writes a lot of stuff. She's worth um, googling and looking up. Um, I think she's a fantastic writer. The Etc. Prayer From the all-night putt-putt range on the outskirts to the mummer's dream instant pavlova drive-in takeaway beside the old highway, to the iguana reptile park, all dead and dying dreams, receive the light. For all the women living alone with their children on the outskirts in outlying housing commission suburbs, who ticked the boxes marked separated, unmarried, divorced, de factoed, who wait cold-legged on windy bus stops for that mid-morning connecting bus to the shopping town in the next satellite suburb, who dream on and on on the collapsed inner springs of lapsed mattresses, stained with the reveries of next fortnight's direct payment, of next Saturday night's bus to the dance at the army barracks, receive the light, etc., etc., etc. To the families who drive their Volvos, their Saabs, their Audis through these depressions, these suburbs of a Sunday Arvo and can't help themselves saying, oh, look at the state of the cars, look at the amount of bottles, look at the number of undernourished and neglected poor-looking little kiddies. Wind down the windows of your air-conditioned side-impact protection Volvos, your every safe feature crumpled zone front and rear optional Saabs, your driver airbag impact safety device Audis, and receive the light, etc., etc., etc. And let us now pray lip service to the unemployed bodgy jobber, the do-gooder social worker weaving and warping the social fabric of lies, to the computer hacker flying down the information highway, to the pilgrims in sturdy plimsolls still walking the commons and the trade routes, stout staff in hand. For the boxer in search of his killer instinct, for the hubcap thief in search of his box full of smarts. To the sex kittens and flesh pots, to the eye candy and trophy wives and their pure self-destruction. And let us pray lip service to all those hell-bent on a perfect contrition, a perfect obliteration. To all those who totally exclude themselves as if they were infectious, always on the outside looking in. Let us pray lip service to so much brutalised innocence, so much butchered innocence, so many broken children. To so many lost children on Nauru, on Lampedusa, Manus Island, on the Turkish border, the Lebanese border, the Gaza Strip, the Calais jungle. 
on inflatables floating around in the Mediterranean. And let us pray now for all the dry drunks white-knuckling it and the wet brains hugging their bottles of gum, etc, etc, etc. And when the bells toll at the Sacred Heart for another dead junkie, pray for all those whose lives are a meditation on the dark, hopeless days between crucifixions and resurrections. And let us pray for the self-funded retirees suffering relevance deprivation and echo chamber effect confirmation bias. The mum and dad investors with bill shock in the grip of tax bracket creep, etc, etc, etc. For all those ascending to a Prozac heaven and all those crashing from a serotonin sky, let us pray for all the abrasives, those who go against the grain, cross counter to the current, who have cut themselves on the bias. Oh yes, pray for all those lovely skirts that flare. And let us pray also for all those who go with the flow, all the go-alongs to get along. And for old ladies who sit perfectly dressed in the armchair in front of their open doors, waiting in case a visitor might come calling, watching for the postie, the neighbour's wave, the man reading the water or gas meter. For those who display weaponised victimhood, for those who poke their sleeping dog ex-lovers and watch them turn from dog to wolf. For those who let their ex-lovers lie fallow floating in their sea grass beds. And also, let us pray for those caught out cheating via pocket phone mishap. And let us pray for the ram raiders, the home invaders, for the white collar criminals and the spree killers, for the spin doctors and nail sculptors, for the televangelists in their mega temples and for all the inspirational speakers in their networks who fill so many yap yap yappy rooms full with the clap 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 ha ha happy feel good factor etc 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 Let us pray finally and most fervently and ferociously for all those who believe they are unredeemable, etc, etc, etc. Track 10 is um, Cook's Rita Wood's piece, Mission Baby, Pass the Parcel. It's a letter that he writes to his mum, who he was taken away from, who he was stolen from when he was really, when he was a baby. And he brings into the story all his brothers, his uncles and aunties. He kind of lists them, big family. Um, and it kind of nails the how shit the practice was um, of... Uh, uh, so it's set in Bell Reynold 
uh, and goes from Bell Reynolds down to Melbourne and to Alambi, the um, Arana, the the, the uh, where wards of the state were placed. There's something very visceral about it, and um, it probably is revealing about how this you know of the stolen generation is uh, one of the good things about telling a story over music. That's quite revealing in that way. Yeah, so Cookshire Redwoods. Sorry, it's been a while since our last correspondence. And it's been so busy, and I find it hard to get the time to do what I'm doing now. Writing you this letter. Well, not that I don't like to do it, but I finally managed to find half an hour to try and do this, and also to make sure you're okay. But let me tell you, Mum, feel so weird writing this letter on an iPhone 6 and trying to manoeuvre these big hands around the keyboard isn't easy. But I suppose this is the way of the times in 2021. As I sit here in Phillip Island and I think back over the five decades I've been alive trying to determine and articulate what it is that makes me me. Can somebody tell me why am I still here? While so many members of our family have entered the dream. Nanny Alice, your mum. Pop Bill, your dad. Papa Yorkie, your second father. Dad, Nugget, your husband. Nana Teresa, dad's mum. Grandfather Ted, Dad's dad. Teresa, your little angel. Gook, Reg, your big son. And the reason why we all beg for Hawthorne. Wally, the funniest one of the lot of us. Alice, your darling big daughter. Alan, your dear sonny boy. And the many grandchildren and extended family members. But can I also say, we've been through some tough times and transitions and eras that I can't really put a finger on which one of those have had the most influence or impact. So, let's go back to the beginning. I know people might expect me to go back to the day I was born, 15th of the 11th, 1965. But as a proud muddy-muddy man, we know our belief system is different to that of non-Aboriginal people. I believe that the beginning for me was when the ancestors decided way before my conception as to when I was to enter into this world and this place to begin this long journey. Born on the banks of the Murrumbidgee River in that little township called Balranel, in southern New South Wales, where it seemed so long ago. Mum, is it true when I hear stories that I was the little pastor parcel mission baby? The one that was handed around like a little gift from hand to hand? Everybody wanting to take me home to their place and show me off, but realising that after a couple of hours that I had to be brought back home to you and Dad 
and all the other kids. Well, let's go through all your kids. As you would obviously know, there's 12 of us. Arthur, Nut we call him. Eric, Mick, Reg, his nickname's Cook. Dave, we called him Gravy. Alice, Joe, Wally, Puck, what a nickname. Maria, Puss, our dear sister Teresa, we called her Sissy. Obviously, me, Kutcher. Dorothy, don't know where she got the nickname Dory Evans. Alan, we called him Todge or Sonny. And our little baby brother Jason, we called him Ned. And also, those many members of our extended family that you and Dad brought into our home to make them feel like they belonged. Can you remember my first decade? From 1965 to 1975? Or more to the point, can you remember this photo I've sent you? I can. Have a look at me. Your then baby boy standing proud with so much excitement dreams in his eyes. With your namesake, your niece, Mary, standing behind me, and my big sisters, Alice and Maria, both by my side, all ready to protect their little baby brother from anyone or anything that would seem to be a threat at the time. Little did we know, especially you and Dad, Mum, that that threat would come only a few weeks later after this photo was taken. The threat being the assimilation policies of the Commonwealth and the ignorance of the time. It pains me to say it, but it'd be the last time we'd see each other for over four and a half long years. With six of us being taken by DHS and taken down to Melbourne and placed in a Rana Methodist children's home out in Burwood, in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. Can I also ask if you remember this photo? It was taken the day you came to visit. I think I was about six at the time. And we were told you were at Arana. So we ran all the way home to see who the visitor was. It was you and my big brother David. He was dressed in his naval cadet uniform. Because you know what? He wanted to look good for us. I see you looking down at me, Mum, to see if I'm okay. Can you please make sure you say hi to all our loved ones? Nanny Alice, Pop Bill, Pop Yorkie, Dad, Nana Teresa, Grandfather Ted, Teresa, Reg, Wally, Alice, and Ellen, and all the other family members who were sadly missed. Please know that we miss you all, but love the fact that you are all no longer in so much pain no ailments in that special place of the dreaming.
mum, I love and miss you. Your ninth borough. Tongue of the Hidden is track 11. Arnold Zabel, a great writer, great Melbourne uh, person. Uh, Arnold's fantastic to work with. I, uh, I share, uh, we both, he, he went to Papua New Guinea 10 years in the 70s. I went in the 80s. Um, but we both had very similar experiences in Rabaul and in the Trobian Islands. And uh, and we both went, you know, I, I went when I was 24, I think he did as well. So we were young wet behind the ears and just so we can share that kind of what it was like he's a a great writer very evocative and his background and his heart give him a great in on the um refugee refugee situation so this is uh uh set in the you know the a, a refugee centre in the suburban western suburbs of Melbourne. It's called Tongue of the Hidden and uh, features Helen Mountford, my musical uh, cohort from the cake, from my friend Chocolate, Chocolate Cake. Anyway, this one's Arnold Zabel. <laughs> of the hidden. She reads Tongue of the Hidden, poems from the divan at night while locked up with her infant daughter. Guards patrol the corridors, flush torches at all hours. To appease their boredom, they mock the imprisoned. She reads Tongue of the Hidden. The women come to her now in the walled quadrangle where the inmates assemble while their children run in circles. Read to us, the women plead. We leave our thirst. Help kill the hours. She reads Tongue of the Hidden. The walls have been breached, the patch of sky is singing. The women are weeping. The verses release a chorus of curved voices, lift the veil from their torment, their tales of violation. In our homelands, they tell their jailers, we were held hostage. They dumped us in the snow, left us for dead, naked. We came to you for help, but you ignored our pleas. Walled us in prisons. She reads Tongue of the Hidden. We come to her now from all corners of the city, follow procedure, electronic scans, Possessions in lockers. 
The quadrangle is a rose garden. The thorns wrapped in fragrance. We draw the scent in and listen. On her release, we bring wine, place the bottle on the table. I come from that city, she says. Shiraz, home to Hafiz, the wine bringer, interpreter of mysteries, composer of the divan, her tongue of the hidden. We drink to the innocent who still count the lost hours, to the women who still gather in the quadrangle while their children run in circles, to the voices that have been stilled, the tongues that long to unveil the worlds of the hidden. Track 12 is by Danny Dixon. Danny, um, uh, I taught Danny piano when he was a kid. Danny has, has you know, very mild uh, disability, uh, which, and he has great parents who kind of, you know, provide for him really well and, you know, give him opportunities. Hence, we were learning piano together. And Danny would come into my studio, he was nine, and come to the studio and we'd set up the keyboards and all these samples of sounds and we do these kind of almost like these radio plays, these rock operas. And Danny would make up these stories, and he'd have then we'd have bombs and police sirens on different notes of the keyboard, and, and some piano over here. And I found a cassette of it the other day. It's like this forty-five minute fantastic, uh, very creative kind of radio play rock opera. Um, 
about how Super Danny saved the world. Now, I'm embarrassing him now because Danny's an adult and um, Danny's done this this piece called Low Expectations uh, about what pisses him off as people having low expectations or on people with uh, disabilities. He's a great he's a great advocate for people who live in this space. Uh, he's a total gamer. He loves you know he's um, you know and he's all over. He's a good film editor as well. But um, uh, Danny's a voice that um, I was kind of keen to get on this. Uh, record and it was a really good it was a really cool experience yeah so it's he's done over this um uh, i've got this new hydrosynth keyboard which was made in china now china is not a country renowned for making great you know when you think of you know craft work and all that you don't think of chinese synthesizers um or can or any of those bands but um uh, this is my favourite piece of equipment at the moment, the Hydrosynth, and so there's a bit of that involved in this record as well as, the, again, the rhythm section of Dave Foley and Paul Carr. You know what really annoys me? Someone having low expectations of you. Someone seeing something that is only a part of you and deciding to use it as a label to say you are defined only by that trait. It annoys me when you approach someone to ask them for support in an endeavour, explaining why you need that support, only for them to focus on the negative aspects of that explanation. To give support that paints you in a negative light, like them handing you a sticker to put on your shirt, describing the most negative aspects of you letting the world only see that side of you. It bothers me when someone doesn't believe you can accomplish much just because you perceive the world differently from what may be considered normal if such a thing even exists. When, from an early age, you are told that you may never be able to accomplish anything more than simple tasks or even less than the simple tasks themselves. It annoys me, because I am not just a trait, or a flaw, or a burden. I am a human being, an organism who is the sum of many different parts. I can do things that can help to make the world a better place, to make it that much brighter and more enjoyable to be in. I can help contribute to this society and while I may need support in some aspects of doing so that doesn't necessarily make me a burden everyone has something to contribute if only people saw past their low expectations despite some people's low expectations others could and can see great things in my future they are the people you see past just the one trait and see the entire human being that I am. They help me early on when they see that I need that extra support, having the patience to help me develop into a person that shatters all the low expectations some people may have of me. I have long since proven that I can do so much more than the simple tasks some people expected me to struggle with 
Thanks to the support that got me on my feet. This support continues throughout my life, even when the people who are there for me might just be memories now. They are willing to help stand up for me when someone hands me the labeling sticker to put on my shirt to help me prove that I'm more than just one trait. It is that support that helps me to smash through the low expectations the doubters might have of me to show to the world that I can do many great things without having to surrender my dignity or even put on those stickers because it really annoys me when the support I am offered by people with low expectations turns out to be so worthless that I could do just fine without that support. for me and for countless others she helped. She helped me find my voice. She was Sue Morse. I've known Catherine Devney for a, a long time. Uh, she's a brilliant woman. She's great. I, um, as a writer, as a performer, as a comedian, um, as an agitator. And I asked her to be on this spoken word record and she came up with this piece about which is kind of her writing that she'd done about uh, the reservoir baths. So as I said in the preamble before, you, it's kind of very, it's a very evocative piece. We've all got memories of, you know, being a young adolescent or a pre, pre-pubescent adolescent at the bar, at the, you know, the, your local swimming pool and, you know, looking at the big 16 and 17 year old kids and thinking they were everything and you're only a kind of a, dweeby 12 or 13 year old and you know can do I have the guts to go and dive off the tower and um you know and the smell of the you know, kind of almost the Mr Whippy ice cream which and the fairy floss or the pies or you know and then you probably had your first cigarette there as well um Viscount Tens or Alpine or something um and you'd spend the whole day there and you get burnt to a crisp but just like you wouldn't wear seatbelts in the back of the uh, Valiant station wagon, you didn't, <laughs> you didn't put sunblock on. But Catherine writes this really, really well, and it was fantastic working with her. And uh, um, uh, yeah, into the drink she goes. On the way there, I would be so excited I could barely stop myself sprinting ahead running through the turnstiles past the signs that said no bombs, no running and no heavy petting and hurling myself into the sparkling blue. The closer we got to the reservoir baths, the louder the sounds became of happy kids jumping and laughing and water splashing and people diving, jumping and paddling. The delicious smell of chlorine, cigarette smoke, reef suntan oil, melted ice cream and the pool canteen. Despite the widely accepted 1970s wisdom that if you swam within an hour of eating that you would die, the small, busy pool canteen had a queue a few heads deep at all times. 
heady aroma of salty, buttery popcorn popping. Pies, sausage rolls and pasties heating in the warmer. Mixed lollies and fairy floss being spun was intoxicating. There was the big pool, the little pool, the baby pool and the diving pool. The deeper the water, the deeper the shimmering blue. The lawns were lush green and sharply edged. The baths were overseen by tattooed lifeguards with missing teeth and mullets who wore tight white nylon football shorts. They carried whistles to assert their power. The lifeguards looked terrifying but were kind and no-nonsense. They told us little kids to stop running, chatted up the teenage girls and were constantly threatening to ban the older boys from the diving board for being fucking dickheads. I remember the day I first plucked up the courage to jump off the diving board into the square 10-foot pool. I'd watched hundreds of others jump off the towers for years. At first, I watched with fear, then awe, and finally, the creeping terror when the part of me that knows tells the rest of me that doesn't, I'm going to do something I am scared shitless of. There was always an audience watching the jumpers, divers and bombers hurl themselves off the springy aqua boards into the drink. The phlegmatic audience sleepily commentated, often identifying the bomb or bomber by name and occasionally cheering when someone created an enormous splash or when they fucked up and almost killed themselves. The day I finally took the leap was the day the discomfort of knowing I was going to do it outweighed the discomfort of my fear. I didn't tell anyone, not even myself. My wet feet left dark marks on the hot grey concrete as I walked round to join the queue to the diving board ladder. The adrenaline peaked when there were only two people ahead of me. It dipped by the time I was at the start of the queue and transformed into focus. I didn't timidly walk to the end of the diving board, hovering on the edge, weighing up my options like many of the girls and little kids, which would annoy the shit out of the others waiting in line. I was committed. There was no turning back. I looked to the sky and said a silent prayer. Please God, don't let me die. Five, four, three, two, one, blast off! I charged down the diving board and jumped. My arms and legs startled in panic as my body tried to make sense of it all, grasping for anchor point as I flew through the air. I plunged into the water arse first. The chirpy, high-pitched noises from the pool suddenly morphed into the low, slow sounds of the deep. I felt trapped and didn't think I'd ever find my way out. I couldn't work out which way was up. I tumbled and tumbled until my eyes focused on the light through the water and furiously dog paddled towards it. My face broke through the surface and I took a huge gulp of air. I had survived. As I caught my breath and reorientated, I thought to myself, I did it. I did it. Hey champ, said the lifeguard. 
You have to swim over to the side and get out so the next kid can have a shot. Okay, so the uh, last track, track 14, um, I've collaborated with Kerry Simpson, a Melbourne singer, on a range of things over the years. I I co-wrote and sang on a piece that she did in Haiti, a voodooan record that she did back in the day. She's come in and sang backing vocals on records that I've produced or on some of my songs. You know, I've sat in on sessions with her gigs. And it's always... Kerry's no nonsense. She's a really great. She's a really great writer, a really great songwriter, and lyricist and wordsmith. Yeah, no, I, I love working with her. Her piece is an ode to Chris Wilson. It's called Six Days Before He Died, and it's about her getting together with Chris for a cook-up for a feed. It happened to be six days before he passed away, and Chris played tunes. He was like DJ for the day, so she talks about that day but also reflects back on uh, Chris's contribution to the music scene and to the the songs that he wrote. There's a little bit of Chris's harmonica in in the track as a fitting way to finish off to finish off the album. Six days before he died, we talked for hours, we laughed, we didn't cry, I made him red beans and rice, he DJed all afternoon, the sun sunk into twilight and he lived enough for three men, he said, and wasn't afraid to die, and then he was gone. Within the voice of my generation for my money. Erudite, exquisite, <laughs> sometimes wiry, exurbic wit, and insightful command. He called this a It was a working class kind of Sophocles, a tour de force of all our foibles and realities. He, he sang just like we spoke. He didn't give a shit. I was inclined to use lines like, he just couldn't hack it. With his Gladstone bag and harps and bundies, he unfell works of art effortlessly. When he sang about the things that we do with our lives, we could feel it. We'd all lived it. At some time. They still tell how much they loved him, how banjo the back streets. How his music changed their lives forever. Irrevocably. died, we put his ashes into the sea, he went to number one today, what life 
laugh at the county Because this was a voice that touched to the bone it came from a place we all come from And let us know we were heard And those long gone Listen You will hear Thank Dr. Gonzo for giving me the opportunity to be able to uh, rabbit on about this um, uh, record. You know, you can get the record on Bandcamp or on my website, which is davidbridey.com. And, you know, you can. It's on streaming services and everything. But, uh, yeah, I hope you've enjoyed it and um, we'll catch you around. Thanks for listening to an episode of And This One's Introduced By. I'm Dr Gonzo and I'll be presenting another artist with another album next time on This One's Introduced By. Catch you next time. Hi, I'm David Bridie. Please support Community Radio 3CR. Get involved. Find out more on the website at 3cr.org.au.